0: This is the Bible in Wenya, day 212. How to avoid arguments, deal with disputes, and stop fighting. On the 23rd of June 2016, the referendum on Britain's membership of the EU resulted in a 52-48 split in favour of leaving. The campaign was hostile, the nation was divided, and the main political parties soon descended into infighting and division. This is one example of what we see across the globe. Every news update seems to include stories of arguments, disputes and fighting. When sin entered the world, arguments, disputes and fighting began. Adam blamed Eve. Cain murdered his brother. The history of the world ever since has been one of conflict of all kinds. When people turn away from God, they start fighting one another. We see the breakdown of relationships wherever we look, broken marriages, broken homes, broken relationships at work, civil wars, and wars between nations. Sadly, the church is not immune. Right from the start, there have been arguments, disputes, and infighting. How? Should we handle conflict?
1: From Proverbs 18 and 19. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right, until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Casting the lot settles disputes and keeps strong opponents apart. A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. From the fruit of their mouth a person's stomach is filled. With the harvest of their lips, they are satisfied. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. The poor plead for mercy, but the rich answer harshly. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs chapter 19 Better the poor whose way of life is blameless than a fool whose lips are perverse. Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way?
0: Avoid arguments. Proverbs is full of practical advice on how to avoid arguments. First, listen to both sides. There are usually two sides to an argument and it's always worth hearing both parties. The right of cross-examination is an important one with a vital place in any legal system. The first speech in a court case is always convincing until the cross-examination starts. Second, ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. We need God's guidance especially when facing tough decisions. In the Old Testament, casting the lot was a way of settling disputes. However, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there are better ways of receiving God's guidance over disputes. Third, avoid unnecessary offence. Do everything you possibly can to avoid offending people. Someone close to you who's been offended can be more unyielding than a fortified city. Serious disputes create barriers among friends. These walls are easy to erect and extremely hard to pull down. Fourth, choose your words carefully. Your words can be a life-giving force Bring great satisfaction and heal division. Words satisfy the mind as much as fruit does the stomach. Good talk is as gratifying as a good harvest. Yet words can also be a destructive force. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. You can do great good or great damage by what you say. Fifth, choose your companions carefully. The writer says, find a good spouse, you find a good life, and even more, the favor of God. certainly true in my experience that Pippa's wisdom, advice, and involvement have often helped me to avoid getting into trouble in this area. A good husband or wife will be a peacemaker. Whether we're married or not, what we need are really close friends. The second part of this proverb reminds us that while friends come and go, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother or sister. These are the sorts of friends we need in our lives. If you have friends like that, never stop thanking God for them. Ultimately, of course, Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother or sister. Lord, may the words I speak be a source of life to those around me. New Testament from
1: Romans 14 Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith One person considers one day more sacred than another, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced that, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval.
0: Deal with disputes. This passage is so relevant to some of the disputes going on in the global church right now. If only the church in the last 2,000 years had followed Paul's instructions As John Stott writes, Paul's purpose in these verses was to enable conservative-minded Christians, mostly Jewish, and liberal-minded Christians, mainly Gentiles, to coexist amicably in the Christian fellowship. There are certain matters over which Paul was willing to fight to death the truth of the gospel that Christ died for us. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Lordship of Christ are examples of what is non-negotiable. However, There are other things that are not nearly as important. There are disputable matters. There are secondary areas. He gives various examples such as vegetarianism or thinking of one day as more sacred than another. Today, some Christians abstain from alcohol. Others do not. Some Christians are pacifists. Others are not. And there are many other issues where Christians are passionately divided about disputable matters. How do we deal with these disputes? First. Welcome those with different views. He writes, Accept. The word means welcome those whose faith is weak. Welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Second, do not be quick to judge. Don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. He goes on, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Then let us no more criticize and blame and pass judgment on one another. We must allow people to have different views from our own without judging them for it. This is the heart of the matter. Four times in this passage, Paul says we are not to judge one another. Third, don't look down on others. We must not look down on those who have different views from our own. God has welcomed them so should we. Fourth, do what you think is right. On all these secondary matters, everyone should be fully convinced in their own minds each person is free to follow the convictions of conscience. If you eat meat, thank God for prime rib. If you're a vegetarian, thank God for broccoli. Just because we may agree to disagree on these matters does not make them irrelevant. We need to be careful to do what we think is right in every situation. Fifth, Assume the best about other people's motives. Those who regard one day as special, do so to the Lord. Those who eat meat, eat it to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And those who abstain, do so to the Lord and give thanks to God. Give others the benefit of the doubt and assume that they're seeking to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Sixth, be sensitive about other people's consciences. Paul says, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in another believer's way. For example, if someone regards drinking alcohol as wrong, it would be insensitive to drink alcohol in front of them. We do not want to cause them distress. Seventh, help and encourage one another. So let's agree to use all our energy in getting along with each other. Help others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. Eighth, always act in love. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. So be sensitive and courteous. Don't eat or say or do things that might interfere with the free exchange of love. Disputable matters are important, but not as important as what unites us all. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what really matters. Let us not get caught up in arguments about disputable matters which divide the church and put off those outside the church. Follow the words of the medieval writer Rupertus Maldinius on the essentials, unity, on the non-essentials, freedom, in everything, love. Lord, I pray for a new unity in the church. Help us to focus today and each day on what the kingdom of God is really about, righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Old Testament from 1 Chronicles 9 and 10
1: now the first to resettle on their own property in their own towns were some Israelites, priests, Levites, and temple servants. Those from Judah, from Benjamin, and from Ephraim and Manasseh who lived in Jerusalem were Uthai, son of Amihud, the son of Omri, the son of Imri, the son of Benai, a descendant of Pires, son of Judah. Of the Shelanites, Isaiah, the firstborn, and his sons. Of the Zerahites, Jewel. The people from Judah numbered 690. Of the Benjaminites, Salu, son of Mashalam, the son of Hodaviah, the son of Hasanuah. Ibnaya, son of Jeroham, Eli, son of Azai, the son of Mikrai, and Mashalam, son of Shephatiah, the son of Ruel, the son of Ibnijah. The people from Benjamin, as listed in their genealogy, numbered 956. All these men were heads of their families. Of the priests, Jediah, Jehoiurip, Jakin, Azariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshallam, the son of Zadok, the son of Mereoth, the son of Ahitub, the official in charge of the house of God. Adiah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Pashur, the son of Malkijah, And Maasai, son of Adiel, the son of Jazerah, the son of Meshallam, the son of Meshillemeth, the son of Imma. The priests, who were heads of families, numbered 1,760. They were able men, responsible for ministering in the house of God. Of the Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashub, the son of Azraikam, the son of Hashabiah, a Marerite, Bakbaka, Hiresh, Gelau, and Mataniah, son of Micah, the son of Zichri, the son of Asaph, Obadiah, son of Shemaiah, the son of Gelau, the son of Jeduthon, and Berechiah, son of Asa, the son of Alkanah, who lived in the villages of the Natophethites. The Gatekeepers Shalom, Akob, Talmon, Ahiman, and their fellow Levites Shalom, their chief, being stationed at the king's gate on the east up to the present time. These were the gatekeepers belonging to the camp of the Levites. Shalom, son of Kor, the son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah, and his fellow gatekeepers from his family, the Korahites, were responsible for guarding the thresholds of the tent, just as their ancestors had been responsible for guarding the entrance to the dwelling of the Lord. In earlier times, Phinehas, son of Eliezer, was the official in charge of the gatekeepers, and the Lord was with him. Zechariah, son of Meshelemiah was the gatekeeper at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Altogether, those chosen to be gatekeepers at the thresholds numbered 212. They were registered by genealogy in their villages. The gatekeepers had been assigned to their positions of trust by David and Samuel the seer. They and their descendants were in charge of guarding the gates of the house of the Lord, the house called the tent of meeting. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. Their fellow Levites in their villages had to come from time to time and share their duties for seven-day periods. But the four principal gatekeepers, who were Levites, were entrusted with the responsibility for the rooms and treasuries in the house of God. They would spend the night stationed round the house of God because they had to guard it, and they had charge of the key for opening it each morning. Some of them were in charge of the articles used in the temple service. They counted them when they were brought in and when they were taken out. Others were assigned to take care of the furnishings and all the other articles of the sanctuary, as well as the special flour and wine and the olive oil, incense and spices but some of the priests took care of mixing the spices. A Levite named matatiah the firstborn son of Shalom the Korahite, was entrusted with the responsibility for baking the offering bread. Some of the Kohathites, their fellow Levites, were in charge of preparing for every Sabbath the bread set out on the table. Those who were musicians, heads of Levite families, stayed in the rooms of the temple and were exempt from other duties because they were responsible for the work day and night. All these were heads of Levite families, chiefs as listed in their genealogy, and they lived in Jerusalem. Jeiel, the father of Gibeon, lived in Gibeon. His wife's name was Maacah, and his firstborn son was Abdon, followed by Zur, Kish, Baal, Nur, Nadab, Jedor, Ahio, Zechariah, and Mikloth. Mikloth was the father of Shimiam. They too lived near their relatives in Jerusalem. Ner was the father of Kish, Kish the father of Saul, and Saul the father of Jonathan, Malkishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. The son of Jonathan, Beal, who was the father of Micah. The sons of Micah, Python, Melech, Tariah, and Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Jeda. Jadah was the father of Alamath, Azmaveth, and Zimri. And Zimri was the father of Mozar. Mozar was the father of Bainia. Raphiah was his son. Eliezer his son. And Azel his son. Azel had six sons, and these were their names. Azricam, Bokuru, Ishmael, Sheariah, Obadiah, and Hanan. These were the sons of Azel. 1 Chronicles, Chapter 10 Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died and all his house died together. When all the Israelites in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armour. And sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news among their idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and hung up his head in the temple of Dagon. When all the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men went and took the bodies of Saul and his sons and brought them to Jabesh. Then they buried their bones under the great tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord, and even consulted a medium for guidance, and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death, and turned the kingdom over to David,
0: son of Jesse. Stop fighting. The Philistines fought against Israel. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. Saul was attacked by the Philistines and died as a result. We find this account in 1 Samuel 31. However, the Rite of Chronicles adds an explanation. Saul died in disobedience, disobedient to God. He didn't obey God's words. As we look back at the book of Samuel, we can see that the real problem was that Saul became jealous of David. David did everything he could to submit to Saul and to be on good terms with him. Saul would have none of it. He was out to get David. This internal dispute weakened Saul and made him vulnerable to an attack from outside. We see today how internal disputes among the people of God make us vulnerable to attacks from outside. Jesus prayed that we would be one in order that the world would believe. Lord, help us to be peacemakers, to stop the infighting, and seek unity in order that the world will believe.
1: Pippa adds, Proverbs 18 verse 22 says, he who finds a wife finds what is good. What more is there to say about that?